Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. Last night, Israel Policy Forum held our virtual annual event, what we hope will be our only virtual annual event. We would love to see you all again in person next year when it's safe to do so. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who made last night's program possible, everyone who turned out, and everyone who has continued to support us and engage with our work during what has been a challenging year for us all. And that includes you, our loyal podcast listeners who tune in every week for new episodes of Israel Policy Pod. We are truly grateful for your support. And while we welcome your support and engagement all year round, your support is especially critical during this moment as we head into a new year with a new administration coming into the White House and a new Congress about to be sworn in. Israel Policy Forum really aims to be a credible, go-to source for nuanced commentary and analysis for policymakers in Washington, for community leaders across the generational, denominational, and political spectrums, and really for anyone who shares our vision of a viable, sustainable, two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel. If you want to ensure that that vision retains its power and relevance in 2021, and you have not had the opportunity to do so already, then I encourage you to make a contribution in support of our work at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you. Now to our main feature. Last night's program honored the work and contributions of Abner Goldstein, Richard Ravitch, and Brianna Goodlin. That program had two panel discussions. The first featured our honoree Abner Goldstein in conversation with Yossi Klein-Halevi, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes about some of the issues facing decision-makers in Jerusalem, leaders of the American Jewish community, and policymakers in Washington as the Biden administration takes office in just a couple of weeks. The second was a discussion between our board chair, Susie Gelman, and Congressman Ted Deutsch of Florida's 22nd District about some of the policy priorities that legislators on Capitol Hill and the incoming Biden administration will face vis-a-vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Middle East writ large. So for today's episode, we will be featuring both of those panels in their entirety, including content that was not featured at last night's annual event. Without further ado, here they are. I hope you enjoy. I'm pleased to be joined by three esteemed guests. Yosti Klein-Halevi is a senior fellow at the Hartman Institute, the Sholem Hartman Institute, and co-director of the Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative. He's the author of several acclaimed titles, including Like Dreamers and the Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Among his other achievements, Yosti is also one of the premier students of an authority on Israeli music. Rabbi Rick Jacobs is president of the Union of Reform Judaism. Rabbi Jacobs previously spent 20 years as a visionary spiritual leader at Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York. Third, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes 
is a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. That's where she focuses on U.S. policy in the Middle East. Witt has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from November 2009 to January 2012. Josie, Rabbi Jacobs, Tamara, thank you very much for uh, being with us here. Let's dive right in. Elections are prominent in the news. We have just gone through a bruising election in the United States, and there's talk of it in Israel of a possible fourth election in less than a two-year period. President-elect Biden is a vocal supporter of the state of Israel, but whatever one thinks of the substance of his approach versus Trump's policy, it is clear that Biden does not carry Trump's same enthusiasm and support from a majority of Israelis. Yossi, you were on the ground in Israel. What has been the reaction in Israel and how is the Israeli government going to deal with the president who doesn't just check off all of the boxes on their wish list? Hi everyone, and uh, delighted to be with, uh, with all of you. Uh, being on the ground in Israel these days is a very uh, complicated matter because what it really means is I'm uh, in my room most of the time. Uh, I, uh, my, <laughs> to say that I have the finger on the pulse of Israeli society would really be overstating the case these days. Uh, that said, I, I can say what I think, what I think uh, we all know, uh, which is that there's a, a vast disparity between how most American Jews and most and most Israelis uh, have viewed the last two administrations uh, really were mirror images uh, of each other. Uh, most Israelis uh, view the Obama administration as hostile, and the Trump administration as probably the most pro-Israel administration we've ever had. And and I think it's fair to say that um, most American Jews see things very differently. And I'll just speak for myself. I I welcome uh, Biden's uh, approach on uh, on the Palestinians. I think we need uh, a um, a more activist approach and and an, an approach that reassures the Palestinians that they do have a a um, a place in uh, a, a a credible. A credible place in the in in this Middle East that's uh, that's emerging. I hope that the Biden administration will have the wisdom to build on the tremendous successes of uh, the last few months for our countries, uh, not just making peace with Israel, but I'd say three out of those four normalizing relations with Israel. Sudan, I think, is a little iffy. Uh, certainly, uh, UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco uh, are normalizing. And the last point, uh, and this worries me very deeply, as I think it does most Israelis, is where Biden is going to go in Iran. The fear here is that uh, the that the new administration uh, will uh, will adopt wholesale with some cosmetic changes. Uh, the Iran deal, which uh, many Israelis, like myself, 
view as the single greatest strategic threat that this country has faced in decades. Yeah, thank you, Yoshi. Uh, Tamara, the, uh, you just issued a report, it's going to be out today, from the Center for New American Securities. How does that report jibe with what you think the Biden administration will be doing? <laughs> well, Abner, first, let me say, Mazal Tov, it is great to be here with you as part of this amazing event. Um, I, I would love to say that the Biden administration will adopt our recommendations wholesale, uh, but that's very unlikely. Um, it, that would be a sort of think tank home run, right? Uh, we've spent a year with a fantastic group of Americans um, from across the political spectrum who've been involved in Israeli-Palestinian negotiations for decades uh, to develop this report. And the report is really rooted in the idea that this conflict um, is not anywhere near resolution. The two parties are nowhere near resuming negotiations. Um, and yet, that does not mean that the United States should put this issue on the back burner or walk away. Um, that in fact, the sort of push for the holy grail of a final status agreement over the last couple of decades, um, while understandable and worthy for sure, uh, and uh, that, that search has in a way devalued, pushed to the side a lot of the daily costs of this conflict for Israelis and Palestinians alike, and for the region, for its stability and for American interests. And so the approach that we're proposing is one that really focuses American attention on, um, number one, addressing some of the urgent issues that prevent the United States from being an effective uh, uh, convener uh, on this conflict at the moment, including resuming a relationship with the Palestinians. Number two, sustaining the viability of a two-state outcome. And number three, really focusing on steps that can be taken to advance freedom, to advance security, to advance prosperity for everyone living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea today. And there is a lot that can be done today. Um, so what we're not recommending is a kind of appoint a new senior presidential envoy and convene a new round of final status negotiations. But we are suggesting an approach that will um, position the United States in a sustainable way to improve lives and livelihoods, to improve security, and to lay a foundation for more productive negotiations down the road when the parties are ready. Yeah, yeah, thank you to tomorrow. Hopefully they're, they're listening. Biden administration is listening, reading the report and listening to you. Uh, let's question for you, Rabbi Jacobs. A significant majority of the Jews over the past 30 years or more, Jews in the United States who voted for the Democratic presidential candidate. This November, again, the Jewish vote was overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. 
Yet at the same time, we have had a dichotomy of views within the Jewish community. On the one hand, there has been some sense that Trump was fueling anti-Semitism on the right. And conversely, there was some concern that, that, grave, that there was a grave threat of anti-Semitism and hostility to Israel arising from the far left. I would welcome your thoughts on this, both in how that influenced the 2020 voting and how that is going to play out in the future. First of all, let me also congratulate you, Abner, and say how delighted I am to be with my colleagues uh, for this important conversation. Uh, first of all, what I think is critical to take away from the demographics of the Jewish vote in the 2020 election is that for the overwhelming majority of Jews, um, actually values matter. And I'm going to say it as plainly as this, that Israel matters. I think we ask sometimes the question, you know, American Jews don't really care very much about Israel. So they're voting basically around a, a set of core domestic issues. I actually think that's not correct. I think what is true about American Jews is we vote our values and our values have lined up, not, not entirely, but more, um, more over the years with the Democratic Party. Though I think one of the things that we know, and this was true for the Ruderman study that came out last winter, that the overwhelming majority of Jews support Israel, but the majority also have critiques of that policy. And what we have seen in the last four years in particular is the weaponization of what pro-Israel is about. If you don't line up according to certain policies of the current Israeli government, then you cannot be pro-Israel. Uh, the majority of American Jews push back entirely on that presumption and say, no, no, you actually can be a deeply committed Zionist and have critique about, frankly, questions on the left or the right. In terms of anti-Semitism, uh, what I think most American Jews say is they don't like it on the left or the right, period. That's the majority of Jews. Now, we have gotten into all kinds of conversation about which is worse, uh, the, uh, the left-wing anti-Semitism or the right-wing anti-Semitism. That's not a winning discussion, to my mind. And I think that uh, there's no doubt that over the last four years, hate has seen a growth. It's been a growth industry. And that has led, unfortunately, to a growth and increase in anti-Semitism. At the same time, I think we're all trying to negotiate what will be the new Biden administration? How will it build a different relationship with particularly the progressive and liberal Jewish community, which by and large were not a part of much of the Trump administration's uh, views and, and policies? But I would just end by saying I think that as American Jews, I'm appreciative of Donald Trump's positive uh, policies towards Israel. I wouldn't agree with all of them, and I don't think all of them have been done in the right balance, but you have to actually give credit for the recognition of the capital of uh, Israel as Jerusalem, also to give credit the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. And the Abrahamic Accords, one has to be positive. Now, the question is, where do we go from this sort of foundational piece and the larger arcs of the Israel-Palestine conflict? That's still before us. And frankly, you know, 
the United States has to rebuild a whole world set of alliances, which have been compromised in the last four years. So it's a complicated moment. But I think the strength of the American Jewish community is that we want to rebuild the divisiveness that has been sown into our relationship with Israel and with one another. So um, there's a lot that I, to be done. Uh, do you mind uh, if I jump in on that? Please. So I, I think Rick just outlined, you know, the way in which our broader political environment shapes the conversation within the Jewish community. We can't escape our context, right? And the context, both in American society and in Israeli society, is a context of increased polarization, of decreased public trust in our institutions, of a harshening of political rhetoric and demonization of uh, our political opponents. And within that context, it's not surprising that we see polarization inside the Jewish community as well. Um, there's a lot that we can do at a communal level, at a local level, and at a national level to try and repair uh, and overcome that polarization. Um, but I think that it's, it shouldn't surprise us that the Jewish community feels um, not just what the rest of America feels, but feels it even more because when America is divided, um, <clears throat> oftentimes Jews become targets. And the last few years, I think, have, have demonstrated that pattern once again. We're not the only targets, um, but we have become targets and we have suffered. I think the thing that I find most troubling is that in this environment of polarization, we have politicians, both American politicians and Israeli politicians, who have instrumentalized the US-Israel relationship. They've weaponized the relationship in their domestic political arguments. So they might say they're talking to Israelis, but they're really talking to their political base. And you see the same with Israeli politicians, sometimes saying they're talking to American progressives about BDS, but they're really talking to their own political base. And when the, when the relationship gets instrumentalized that way, it's, it's not serving the best interests of the two countries. It's serving domestic political interests instead. Yossi, do you have anything to add to this question? Yeah, I, I um, my concern really is the future, and I think it's the concern of all of us, the future of the American-Jewish-Israeli relationship. And what worries me about what's emerged in the last years is a growing sense on both sides uh, of the relationship that we no longer have each other's back. Uh, whether this is a, an accurate perception or not, I, I think it needs to be put on the table. Uh, I know that, that many American Jews were justifiably uh, outraged by the uncritical embrace of, uh, of the Trump administration and the part of the Israeli government. Uh, it went far beyond uh, gratitude and, and was a, a really a... a a passionate, a passionate relationship. And uh, without thinking about what the Trump administration meant uh, for, for American Jews, for the kind of America that allowed American Jewry to thrive, and uh, Trump was in that sense 
uh, I would go so far as to define him as an existential threat to to the liberal order that sustained the 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 emergence of the American Jewish community as we know it today. Uh, on the other side, uh, many Israelis uh, still still uh, harbor deep. Uh, resentment toward the American Jewish community for not opposing the uh, more vigorously the the Iran deal in 2015. And I'm really worried about how that's going to play out in the in the coming months. Uh, will the Jewish community uh, take an active role in uh, in trying to to convey to Biden that returning to the 2015 deal, even with cosmetic changes, uh, is um, would be seen by Israelis as a betrayal. And so uh, we're we're now in 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 the realm uh, of where where each side feels betrayed by the other, and that's what worries me. And because and 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 I would go so far as to say that each side has grounds for feeling. This deep sense of uh, of betrayal of its of its most basic interests. Jamar, do you have any sense <clears throat> what the Biden administration will do in terms of uh, Iran treatment of Iran and uh, the expectation? What is the expectation that we'll rejoin the JCPOA? Well, I I can't speak for the incoming team, but I can. Um, see what they've said. And I, I, while I understand the fears of Israelis that Yossi expressed um, and uh, the notion that is that Iranian nuclear weapons development is an existential threat to Israel, there is no question. Um, I think what Biden has said repeatedly is that he's willing to reenter the deal if the Iranians return to compliance with the deal. But where we are right now is that the Iranians are very far from compliance with the deal. Uh, And in fact, just last week or the week before, I think, announced additional steps that would take them further out of compliance. Um, So the the conditions that he has set for reentering the deal don't exist. Um, And I personally am skeptical that the Iranians are going to go there anytime soon. both because they have doubts about the United States and the international community's commitments to this deal. Uh, You know, they can make the argument that having had one American president sign a deal and the next American president walk away from the deal, why should they rejoin? The president after Biden may just walk away again. Um, And so I think that the barrier to a simple reentry is pretty significant. Uh, And I don't expect to see it, frankly. What I do expect to see is the Biden administration coming in the door. This is a a man who's built his entire foreign policy career on relationships, um, on listening and coming to terms with, uh, with our friends abroad and coming in knowing that the Trump administration has eroded a lot of those relationships, although perhaps not the one with Netanyahu. Um, And so I think he's going to begin by reaching out to partners, um, first in the P5 plus one in Europe uh, and in the region, including the Gulf states and including Israel, 
and recognizing that one of the big developments of the past year is the public reveal of an alliance between Israel and the Gulf states forged over the common threat from Iran. So that's something he's got to confront. Uh, and I don't think we're going to see a sort of leap into renewed negotiations. I don't think uh, that's the desire on either side, frankly. But there's a lot of room for consultation, and I hope that Israelis will uh, take that to heart. I also hope that Israelis, for all of the benefits that they see that they believe they've reaped from the Trump administration over the last four years, will remember that those benefits were granted capriciously, thoughtlessly, recklessly, and along with them came other capricious, reckless, thoughtless moves like announcing a withdrawal from Syria without consulting with Israel, revealing Israeli intelligence to the Russians. Um, so there, you know, there really were two sides to this coin. And I think a more consistent, open, honest relationship will help assuage the concerns of both sides. Thank you. Rabbi Jacobs, do you see any way of, of uh, resolving the dichotomy between the Israeli views on this and the, I think, the dominant American view? Well, I think, to be honest, uh, we have polar opposites, you know, as Yossi laid out, uh, the mirror image, you know, people would say 70 to 80 percent of Israelis would have voted for Donald Trump. And uh, the same would be true in the reverse for uh, Joe Biden. So you have basically trains moving, not in parallel, but actually in some cases in opposite directions. Um, I think that it's critical for there to be, you know, if you think about the Trump administration and the and the Netanyahu administration, frankly, the key base was not the American Jewish community. Uh, the key base in America has been the evangelical community. And to be very honest, they have a different set of agendas and commitments regarding Israel, regarding theology, uh, regarding the, the West Bank and settlements and the possibility of any ultimate resolution of Israel-Palestine conflict. So I think it's important to know that um, the American Jewish community has got to be a part of this relationship. And frankly, in a uh, period of time when bipartisanship has been obliterated uh, by both the U.S. and the Israeli administration, and to now say, well, we have to, you know, kind of see what the Biden administration, we got to basically rebuild that the bipartisan support for the state of Israel over decades has been the most critical factor to keeping Israel safe. And um, frankly, that is gonna take more than a little bit of work. I think the American Jewish community uh, can help in that project. And I think it's really critical to establish that uh, pro-Israel is connecting to the ideals and the people uh, of Israel. And I think it's critical to also point out that most Israelis really don't understand very much about the U.S. Um, Jewish community. Uh, I just would give you one example. There's uh, an institution on the Tel Aviv uh, University campus called Beit HaTfutzot, the House of the Diaspora. And for the longest time, that museum had an exhibit about the diaspora you know, in history. And there was a series of dark dusty models of synagogues from history. And you walk through it, you just felt like, oh my gosh, this is so sad. It's over, it's done, <laughs> it's historical. And the truth is now it's a vibrant place. 
and frankly for Israelis to learn about the vitality of American Jewish life. You know, so many Israeli politicians talk about the American Jewish community as basically done, the last person out, turn out the lights. It's critical for there to be political understanding, but there's gotta be a deeper basis for our relationship, that we're part of a people, a worldwide people that cares one for the other. Ultra-Orthodox, reform, secular, and I think to rebuild that's even a bigger project than rebuilding bipartisanship on a political basis. What, how do we build our relationship to world Jewry, and how do we ask Israel to regard particularly the, the second largest Jewish community in the world, which is North America, as a, as a partner, as a, um, as a force for good for our people and for the values that undergird us? That feels to me the project, and I don't uh, for one moment have any simplistic sense of how that's going to be accomplished. But it's far more than um, the bipartisanship between Democrats and Republicans. It's the larger sense of the project of the Jewish people. It certainly would be great to try to to resolve that in some degree. Uh, let's switch back to Israeli uh, environment. And back to you, Yossi. Israel may well be headed for a fourth round of elections in the next few months. Prime Minister Netanyahu has been very skilled in retaining his position. But now amid the coronavirus crisis, Bennett, Naftali Bennett, the leader of the hard-right Yamina party and a vocal supporter of the West Bank annexation has gained in popularity. Current polls show him quadrupling his presence in the Knesset. Uh, Bennett's surge seems to have more to do with the pandemic than the, with the Palestinians. Uh, what, Yossi, does that say about Israelis' public priority, public's priorities? Well, in terms of uh, fourth election in two years, one can say that Israelis are so passionately in love with democracy that we just vote every few months. But uh, there's really a, um, a, a, um, a great anxiety uh, beneath the uh, ironic comment. Uh, and that is that uh, this is the first time that I can remember really worrying about the future of Israeli democracy. Uh, we've never had a prime minister Four, who has declared open war on the legitimacy of our democratic institutions, uh, who has incited so openly and, and, and encouraged hatred among Israelis to the extent that Netanyahu has, uh, certainly in the last two years. Uh, it began with hatred toward uh, our fellow citizens who are Arab Israeli, and inevitably, it's moved to into hatred for for his Jewish political opponents. Uh, so that's one one side of it. Uh, the other piece of this is that uh, Benny Gantz uh, has essentially destroyed the credibility of the center. And uh, you know, I faithfully voted for Benny Gantz three times. I was ready to vote for him a fourth and a fifth. Just we were ready to keep. His voters were ready to keep showing up time after time, just as long as he would fulfill his promise to us of trying to bring down this government. And, um, and what, what I find so unforgivable uh, in terms of uh, Benny Gantz's uh, 
betrayal of his promises to the electorate was that he um he destroyed really the credibility of uh, of the Israeli center and bear in mind that in Israel today uh, there is no left right divide that's over it's the center right divide and if you erode the center then you really risk the kind of situation that we're seeing today where if you look at the polls uh, right wing parties and their various configurations uh, will be getting uh, 80 out of 120 Knesset seats. Now that's extraordinary. That brings us back uh, in reverse to the situation in the early years of the state when it was the left that was that was unbeatable, that was a, a virtual monolith in, 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 in the Knesset. And, uh, and so there are many reasons for that, but certainly Benny Gantz uh, has pride of place. I am, um, in terms of uh, of what to hope for in in these coming elections. Uh, at this point, I'm I'm I would really hope that they don't happen, because the choices are either Netanyahu getting reelected, and then having his own. A, a clear majority, or further to the right, uh, a, a government set up by, uh, as you mentioned, uh, by Bennett and uh, and now Gideon Saar, uh, who is very hard line on uh, on all the issues that uh, that that I find so problematic, uh, from uh, from annexation of the territories, which which. Uh, uh, Gidon Saar uh, was a passionate supporter of, uh, to expelling African refugees from Israel. And that was one of Gidon Saar's uh, main platforms. We forget that. Uh, and, and yes, I, I want to see Netanyahu, desperately want to see Netanyahu unseated. Uh, but as it turns out, not at any price. Since we are talking about the Israeli elections tomorrow, let me ask you a two-part question. Prime Minister Netanyahu and President-elect Biden know each other very well. How do you characterize their relationship? Furthermore, there is a distinct possibility that someone like Bennett could be a senior partner in the next Israeli government. If Israel ends up with such a far-right coalition, which prioritizes settlements and annexation, how would that impact the new administration and congressional policies towards Israel and the Palestinians? Yeah, uh, well, I think those are those are tough questions. Um, look at the most basic level, Abner. Israel is a democracy, um, and Israeli citizens will vote, and the United States will accept the outcome and work with the government that results. Um, I think by, President-elect Biden, you know, worked with Netanyahu when he was in office 96 to 99 and during the Obama administration. So um, you're right, they have a long history. Uh, at the same time, I think that um, dating back to uh, last year's presidential campaign, Biden did draw some red lines, if you will, with respect to American policy uh, on questions like annexation. 
And in drawing that line, saying that annexation takes us farther from negotiations, farther from a two-state solution, and uh, like other unilateral actions that Israelis or Palestinians might take um, that would do that, it's, it's something he opposes. And he said he would oppose it as president. So he's been very explicit. And I think in saying that, he's got um, wall-to-wall support from the Democratic caucus in Congress uh, you saw very strong um, statements, including from Democratic leaders in Congress and from some of the strongest pro-Israel voices in Congress last year against annexation, warning that annexation made it harder to achieve a two-state solution, made it harder to resume negotiations. Um, and look, speaking analytically, <clears throat> it's quite clear that annexing territory, um, and if you look at the, you know, the Trump plan map, for example, to take sort of the most expansive version, um, <clears throat> that version of uh, annexation would put tens of thousands of Palestinians under effective Israeli control. Their movement would be entirely circumscribed, the circumstances of their lives entirely subject to Israeli control. To do that uh, and not to give those people citizenship, um, to make Palestinians permanent subjects, in that, that means that Israel is no longer a democratic state. To go down that road, I think, would have profound consequences for the U.S.-Israel relationship um, because Americans who you know, regardless of parties, support Israel, see Israel as a strategic ally, um, also see Israel as a state with shared values. And that is something that's important to public support for all of our most important alliances in the world. Uh, so to expect Israel to somehow be an exception to that rule, I think, would be uh, unwise. Um, I think that it's important for an incoming administration to be clear with the Israeli public and with the Israeli government about what the consequences of such a choice might be. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we, we won't have to go down that road. But I, I think we have to understand that the consequences of a choice like annexation are not entirely up to Benjamin Netanyahu or Gidon Saar or Naftali Bennett or Joe Biden. The consequences will play out on the ground. They'll play out in the international community. They'll play out in the region. Uh, and that's exactly why Israel chose not to go forward with the annexation this past year. So I, I think it's important to take that full picture into account. And when I take that full picture into account, I think it's pretty clear that unilateral annexation is not in Israel's interests at this time. Yeah, thank you very much. One final question to each of you, and this may be, your answer may, may duplicate some of the things that you said before. Question is, what concerns you most and what gives you the greatest hope? Uh, Rabbi Jacobs, let's start with you. Um, let me start with hope. Um, I think what gives me the greatest hope is that the Jewish people have adapted and survived all kinds of very complex external and internal challenges, and I believe we have the resilience to do so again. What causes me great concern 
is frankly to watch the um, the core values that undergird the United States of America, and I would argue the the core values that undergird the democratic uh, state of Israel, which is a respect for justice and equality and the dignity of all people. And I think that um, you know it's clear that the U.S. has different interests in more narrow senses than Israel, which lives in a very dangerous part of the world. But what's also expected on the part of world jury is that the state of Israel will not undermine the security and validity of Jews around the world. And that has been a question. I'm going to give you a specific. This week, the question of conversion will once again be front and center in Israel. The Supreme Court has delayed and delayed and delayed. The question is, will non-Orthodox conversion in Israel lead to uh, the law of return being invoked for citizenship? And I just have one story. It's a, it's a Ukrainian couple made Aliyah. They live in Ramat Gan. They have a nine-year-old daughter who has severe medical issues. The father has divorced his wife. He has no contact with her. And she converted last month via a reform rabbi, Rabbi Noah Satat, and the state of Israel currently is trying to deport her. She's a member of the Reform Synagogue in Ramat Gan. And, you know, the idea that that's unfolding in the state of Israel, and, you know, everyone will remind us it's a, you know, it's a government that's elected, the Israelis get to say, but what what this policy is doing is 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 basically saying to world Jewry, the way that you practice Judaism, the way that you understand peoplehood is not valid. It is giving to the ultra-Orthodox the definition of who is a member of our people. And that, frankly, ought to be a serious caution for the Israeli government. So do no harm to the unity and the oneness of the Jewish people. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's fair to expect that uh, American Jews will continue to be staunch supporters of Israel. But at the same time, we will critique policies like um, like annexation, and we will continue to advocate for two states for two peoples because to have an Israel that's not democratic is unthinkable as Jews and as Americans and we hope as Israelis. So my hope is that we will be able to heal the very significant rifts, um, but that we're only going to do so by being very, very um, open and ready to do the hard work. I think the Biden administration has its work cut out. I think the Jewish community has our work cut out for it. But I think one of the tests will be this week and next week. If the Israeli government says to the ultra-Orthodox, mm -hmm. the Shas party, go ahead, legislate against uh, world Jewry, legislate against the unity of the Jewish people, because we need you in this coalition. That is the kind of cynical calculation that undermines uh, the sense of solidarity that has sustained us and I believe will sustain us in the future, but not without serious repair and attention from all of us. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Tamara, your views? Oh, you know, I, I think Rick just spoke to something very important and something that does give me hope, um, which is uh, the awakening of compassion. I mean, the case that he cited, the argument he's making is that um, a policy that is more inclusive is a policy that is more compassionate and a policy that solves people's problems. And that's ultimately what people want government to do. They want it to solve their problems. That's what government does when it's working right. And 
you know, a lot of the um, the division and the grievance that we see in American politics today is because there are a bunch of different segments of the American population who don't think that our government is working to solve their problems. Um, and so we were really at a precipice this year in our election. And thank God we had a candidate who represented compassion and empathy and the common good and the idea of government as a tool to solve people's problems. Um, and that candidate prevailed. Uh, over division and anger and grievance. So I am hopeful about that, recognizing that we are still very divided as a society. Um, I do want to just come back to something that, that uh, was mentioned <laughs> earlier about the hope for peace briefly, which is uh, Rick gave Trump credit for the Abraham Accords. And I think it's appropriate to recognize what a landmark this is. And you can see the impact in the excitement of Israelis about this new opening in the Arab world, um, about the fact that Israelis and Emiratis are doing yoga classes together online in the middle of a pandemic that has us all stuck in our homes. I'm hopeful that that reawakens for Israelis something that they have not felt since the second intifada, which is a sense of um, the fruits of peace, a sense of possibility, a sense of a different kind of interaction with their neighborhood and with their neighbors. Uh, and that gives me hope for the future as well. The reactions to the Abraham Accords is probably one of the few times where you can get virtual unanimity among Jewish communities, both in Israel and in the United States. Yossi, what are your comments? What are your hopes and what are your concerns? Well, I share Rick's anxieties and tomorrow's hopes. I, um, I would go so far, Rick, as to say that handing the keys to Judaism in the state of Israel to the ultra-Orthodox uh, is a profoundly anti-Zionist act. Uh, the Haredim are that part of the Jewish people that generally feel least responsibility for Kuala Yisrael, for the totality of the Jewish people. And my understanding of Zionism today, if Zionism has any relevance at all as an ideology, uh, it is the ideology of Jewish peoplehood. And peoplehood is the ground, the shared commonality. Uh, and, uh, and so to, to to empower the ultra-Orthodox in that way uh, is to strike a, a, a death blow to the credibility of Zionism. So uh, that, that is an ongoing uh, acute anxiety uh, for me as well, Rick. Uh, in terms of, uh, of what gives me hope, you know, in July, we were, at, I was, and, and many of my friends were in a state of near panic. Uh, uh, annexation seemed to be inevitable, uh, unstoppable. And I was writing op-eds and calling whoever I could, whoever I knew on the American side who might have some uh, sway with, uh, with Netanyahu, with, with other Israeli politicians to intervene. Suddenly, instead of the nightmare of annexation with all of the attendant uh, moral uh, 
implications that Tamara raised, uh, we find ourselves uh, with, uh, with, with four peace agreements. And again, uh, these are not, these are peace agreements that are profoundly different from anything we've experienced before. And uh, Tamara, you're right. It's it's the yoga classes. It's the business deals. We can't we can't get enough of each other as as societies. And I think that we're going to see something similar happening in Morocco as well. And and so let's remember where we were in July. Let's remember the 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 angst, the anxiety of of the fears of annexation, uh, and where we are today. So I think that that. Uh, the, the there is a built-in break b r a k e uh, that these agreements uh, have um, have created. Uh, we we no longer make unilateral decisions in the Middle East. We now have Arab allies. It's an extraordinary thing for me as an Israeli to use those words, but I have Arab allies. I've been invited to to join a think tank in Abu Dhabi. Now, if you would have told me that four months ago, I would have said you're out of your mind. Maybe maybe two generations from now. And so that that has and and I think tomorrow tomorrow you're absolutely right. This has already had a profound effect on the Israeli public. What this has created is a kind of emotional infrastructure in Israel as a counterweight to the annexationist temptations of Bennett and, and Saar. And uh, in that sense, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Uh, what, uh, what does worry me, uh, and I'll, I, I, I think I've made that clear in this conversation, is Iran, Iran, Iran. Uh, I'm worried by the fact that I have greater strategic agreement with uh, with the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia than I do with the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm very worried about that tomorrow. I wish I could be as optimistic as you. Uh, that uh, and and I do and I and I interpret what you said in an optimistic way that the Iranians uh, are not going to go back to the deal. I my great fear, the great fear in Israel is that the Iranians will grab hold of this deal, as we say in Hebrew, with both, with both hands, because this is the best possible deal that they could get. This is the deal that will guarantee nuclear breakout sooner, sooner or later. Uh, I'll end on an optimistic note, which is that uh, Israel is not alone uh, this time. Uh, in trying to stop a return to the deal, we will have an active partnership uh, with Arab countries, and I believe that will be a public partnership. And that, I think, will have great moral force when Arabs and Israelis together lay out not only what's objectionable about the 2015 deal, but also hopefully an alternative deal to which we could we could live with here. Uh, then I think we really might be moving in a uh, in a much better direction. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Regrettably, our time has run out. Uh, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, Yossi Kleinhal-Levy, thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspective this evening.
Uh, Real pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you to the Israel Policy Forum for the opportunity to chat with this, our, our esteemed guests. It was extremely interesting, valuable, and thoughtful. We look forward to seeing you again. It's my great pleasure to speak with Congressman Ted Deutsch, who represents Florida's 22nd District. Ted is a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and chairs the subcommittee on the Middle East, North Africa, and international terrorism. He's also a very good friend of Israel Policy Forum and a good personal friend. Since we have limited time, we'll be posting our full discussion to our website, israelpolicyforum.org, as an Israel Policy Podcast. Thank you so much, Ted, for participating in our virtual annual event, and Chag Sameach. Uh, thanks, Susie. Uh, thanks. It's great to be with you. Happy Hanukkah. And um, thanks for the thanks for the great job you're doing as board chair. And if I may, just before we get started, uh, I'd love to thank uh, your policy director, Michael Coppola, and Director of Government Relations, Aaron Weinberg, for always being great assets to me and, and our staff and the work that we all do together on the Hill. Thank you, Ted. Sure. Um, so first question, how do you see the incoming Biden administration approaching and prioritizing international concerns? And where do you see Middle East policy filling in? Uh, well, the president-elect obviously has a, a long history of foreign policy uh, and he's well-versed in the region. So there are no questions that he's, he's going to face a lot, of, um, a lot of issues that need immediate attention. And I think Right now, the Middle East uh, isn't going to be the most pressing item on the agenda. Clearly, from a foreign policy standpoint, China and Russia uh, are going to be high on the agenda. China, for obvious reasons, Russia, even as we're speaking, we're learning more about the, uh, the cyber attack that, uh, that Russia launched, um, working to create a, a, a rebalanced and strategic approach to both of them and countering the influence that they've gained around the world during the Trump presidency. So those are important. You know, climate change is is high on the agenda as an international item. And and the president-elect has spoken a lot about strengthening the transatlantic relationship and, and bringing together our, our uh, democratic friends. So in the Middle East, um, outside of the immediate need to get Iran's nuclear program um, back into the, the constraints that were in place before, I don't think you're gonna see the new administration take on major challenges right at the outset. There'll be a push to end the war in Yemen. I think that's really important. There'll be a push to rebalance the Saudi relationship and to reassert our leverage in Syria and, and try to end that conflict. But I don't, I don't see a scenario where there's a, an immediate push on the peace process, for example. Ted, as you very well know, our core issue at Israel Policy Forum is advancing and promoting the two-state solution as the only way to effectively solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and guarantees Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. What do you see as the main challenges facing the two-state solution moving forward? Well, there's obviously been an erosion of confidence on all sides, all the way around. We've move from a place of how to get to a two-state solution to how to try to save a two-state solution. And there's a lot of trust to rebuild on all sides. Uh, the domestic politics are, are really significant, again, on all sides. They've made this a much more challenging space to work. President-elect 
talked a lot about uh, returning to norms, and that's where I think you'll see a lot of the impact. There's been this uh, this incredible focus on the personalities the past four years, and and what we need is real ground level diplomacy again to create conditions on the ground where peace is possible. Um, restarting U.S. dialogue uh, with the Palestinians is going to be critical. It starts with restoring life-saving humanitarian assistance. That's an uh, obvious uh, and, and important significant step. And then also, uh, Susie, we've talked about this before, but removing politics from the U.S.-Israel relationship is also key. This is a, it's a special relationship that serves our security interests and it's rooted in our shared values. It's not it's, it's not, nor should it be uh, seen as some sort of prop to shore up votes at home. And so we're going to have an administration that's working for what is in the long-term interest of our country and Israel's lasting security. And that's, that's going to be an important change. This may be somewhat redundant, but the Biden-Harris team has been clear about its position supporting the goal of two states recognizing it may not be around the corner and opposing unhelpful moves such as unilateral annexation of West Bank territory or Palestinian unilateral declarations of statehood. Do you see President-elect Biden taking an active role to seek to resolve the conflict, understanding what you just said about what the priorities are in the first days, weeks, and months of a new administration? Do you see them taking an active role to resolve the conflict, pursuing more of a conflict management approach or something in between? Um, I, I think it's some. I, I think it's somewhere in between. There is, there's a, there's a whole lot to, to unpack from the last four years of of President Trump in this space. Not, I'm not saying undo. I'm saying unpack. And some of it, um, some of it um, will remain in place, and um, some of it I think will be reevaluated. Uh, but. There's got to be, to your point, there's got to be a, a, a priority in, in reopening U.S.-Palestinian relations. Uh, we can't be good partners for Israel if we're not talking to the Palestinians. And we play a critical role in, in security training and mediating and maintaining stability through our, our relationships that we have on both sides. But again, I don't, I don't see in the first months uh, the new president launching a major peace process effort. I think they'll focus on restoring some sense of normalcy to the relationship and to the region. I do think, though, that um, uh, that they're keenly aware that time is is really of the essence as far as facts on the ground go, and so they won't want to see steps taken that that jeopardize the prospect of of two states. So um, that's I I hope that the parties all recognize the need to refrain from making unilateral moves in the early days of the, the new administration. The, the goal obviously is to retain the possibility um, of, uh, of a two-state solution, which as you point out is the, the, the critical work that um, Israel Policy Forum focuses on. Ted, you've been one of the leading voices on Israel-related issues in Congress. You've helped pass a number of bipartisan resolutions, which Israel Policy Forum has supported, including those that have spoken to the importance of a viable two-state solution and expressing opposition to unilateral annexation, which, as you remember, during the summer looked like um, certainly looked like a likely prospect. Most recently, we were grateful for your extraordinary leadership and partnership with us on the Deutsch-Chakowsky-Schneider Price letter 
that secured the signatures of over 190 of your colleagues to express concern with possible unilateral Israeli annexation of West Bank territory. Going forward, how can Congress play a helpful role in encouraging productive steps by all parties? Uh, well, first, let me thank IPF for the role that, that you play on the Hill in educating members uh, and staff and helping to galvanize support for really critical efforts. Um, that, uh, that letter is something that we worked on together. The IPF team is one of, I, I think, one of the most strategic and forward thinking on these issues. And so again, I, I greatly appreciate uh, your assistance there. And just as I'd like to see the US-Israel relationship depoliticize elsewhere, I would also like to see that same thing happen in Congress. I've made clear many times on the House floor that using Israel or attempting to use Israel for partisan political gain is detrimental to Israel. It's detrimental to the US-Israel relationship. It ultimately hurts our own national interests. So on our side, I, I hope that every move related to Israel will no longer be seen in opposition just because it was done by Trump. I think that's key. And on the other side, I hope that that will stop painting, um, some will stop painting Democrats as anti-Israel and introducing resolutions or letters where that's the sole purpose. We've got to speak as often and as clearly as we can with one voice because that's the best way to further all of our interests. Supporting two states um, has, has always been a bipartisan issue. Supporting assistance to Palestinians was a bipartisan issue. And for, for some of my colleagues, Susie, who want to shift the conversation on Israel, they want to talk about, they want to talk about withholding aid, they want to talk about punitive measures. It's up to all of us to explain why it's not in our interest to do that. Uh, and so we've got to elevate the voices of the majority of the members of the caucus who are friends and supporters of Israel, who believe in a two-state solution, who condemn BDS, who understand the need to engage with the Palestinians, and, uh, and who recognize that it, it's not an either or. We need to work on, on all of these issues if we, uh, if we hope to be able to move toward peace. As we know, the Trump administration has withheld U.S. aid to the Palestinians, while some of the most progressive reaches of the Democratic Party are calling to condition security assistance to Israel based on certain Israeli government actions. Could you share your views on U.S. assistance to Israel and the Palestinians? Sure. So as I've now alluded to um, several times, I, I believe that providing assistance to the Palestinian people is in our interest and it's in Israel's interest. Uh, our humanitarian assistance shouldn't be politicized. We give life-saving assistance because it is the moral thing to do, and it creates stability on the ground, and that's in our national interest. Uh, the Taylor Force Act um, already prohibits aid from going directly to, to the Palestinian Authority until they stop the martyr payment program, and, and I, I was supportive of that. I continue to be supportive of that, and we, I hope, can uh, can find some encouragement by the reporting that that the Palestinians are now looking at reforms uh, in that area as a signal to the incoming administration. Um, so that's, I, I, again, hopefully a positive sign. We have to wait to see. Uh, I work to remove the legal barriers that were put on the delivery of assistance through the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act. Uh, Trump administration still refuses to let that assistance flow 
Uh, Lindsey Graham led the restoration of $75 million that Congress appropriated, which was passed in a bipartisan budget bill and that the administration uh, held. And, and to this day, we have no real answers from the administration on what the status is or what the metrics are for their aid review that started in 2018. So withholding aid was always about trying to, to bully the, the Palestinians into accepting the Trump peace plan. And there will be an opportunity with the new administration to, um, uh, to move forward there. Again, respecting Taylor Force, uh, but also understanding the importance of humanitarian assistance. With respect to Israel, I, I've been clear. I, I don't support conditioning aid, period. Uh, like the majority of my colleagues, I believe in following the law and, and that's, that's what we do. It's um, the law lays out what our assistance can't be used for. It's for self-defense. And I, and I, that's, that's traditionally what we've done and need to continue to. It's not about withholding assistance. Uh, I don't think it's in our interest to start putting restrictions on aid that might impact Israel's ability to protect innocent civilians. And I, I, I know the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, values real diplomacy enough that uh, we're not going to need assistance as a, a lever. They'll have an actual strategy for how to engage here um, in a constructive way that, that furthers all of these goals that we're talking about. And importantly, it, it, as much as I can tell you, I don't support conditioning aid, uh, the president-elect has been clear on that. And ultimately it's gonna be uh, his, his policies that the administration will be implementing. The normalization agreements with the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and now Morocco have changed much of the focus for many in the region. What is your assessment of these developments? And do you think these agreements can be leveraged to create progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front? Well, I, I, I welcome all of these agreements. I think Israel uh, has so much in common with its Gulf neighbors that we can all benefit from. And uh, the, the fact is, Anytime we can further peace, we ought to do it. Absolutely, we ought to do it. And it's, I think it's a, it's an incredible turning point, a, a huge milestone. I know the Biden administration is supportive. I know they want to continue to grow the relationships, build upon the Abraham Accords. Uh, we know that it's not, they don't represent a substitute for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. But I, I do hope to your question that that they create some new momentum. I hope Palestinian leaders see what's what's possible. I hope they, they see the shift and the benefits that, that that brings and that they'll want to find a way to be a, a part of it uh, instead of refusing negotiations. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that a new administration that is committed to diplomacy that wants to build upon the Abraham Accords uh, will, will be able to just package this together and, and help us move forward. What are your thoughts on the transactions the United States has provided to facilitate these agreements, whether it be arms sales to the UAE or Western Sahara recognition in the case of Morocco last week? Uh, well, I, I've said all along, if, if there are side deals that are being made as part, of, as part of these, Congress needs to know what they are. The arms sale wasn't initially disclosed in the way that the Sudan terror designation was or the Western Sahara piece um, was. So that. The UAE sale trickled out afterward, and I've uh, I've articulated the concerns that I have on that front. Uh, preserving Israel's QME is is not just something that I think is important. We have a statutory obligation to do it. 
protecting the transfer of technology um, to the, the, the use of American origin weapons in, in Yemen and Libya um, to others is critically important. And that, and we need to, to fully analyze that before this goes forward. Uh, the Sudan piece, we've got to encourage transition. I, I'm hopeful that we can resolve that one in a satisfactory way that addresses what are really legitimate claims of those who were impacted by terrorism. Um, and Morocco's a, a, a tougher case because there's been this longstanding bipartisan consensus that uh, that's been to support a political process. And so um, we have to, we've got to at least be mindful of of the potential signals that get sent to uh, other places with respect to territorial disputes around the world um, when there is also an ongoing political process. So I look, I wanna see, I want to see these agreements flourish. I think they're really important, um, but we have to be clear also that we're making them because they further our own interests as well. And so with everything else, as with so much of what, what we've seen the past four years, um, when President Trump sees a, a deal to be made, it's, a, it's about a deal. And foreign policy obviously isn't about just getting to yes, it's about, it's about also sustaining and furthering our, our national security interests and, and doing so from a, a position of our values. And that's the way we've got to judge these certainly going forward. Looking at the region as a whole, Ted, and a new incoming administration, what gives you hope for the future of the region? Well, I, I, um, I, I start, I, I guess, Susie, just thinking about travels to the region, which these days we all think about travel, <laughs> travel trips that we've made anywhere. But in this case, uh, thinking about travels to the region, I, I've met really incredible people who are so resilient and, and, and just want security, they want a better future, um, that, that gives me hope thinking about them. When, when the new administration looks at the region, I think they understand what it means for America to lead with our values and that human rights have a prominent place in foreign policy. And that means that, that we act to try to, uh, to mitigate human disaster. And we value and we put resources in in programs that that make the future of the region brighter. So as you look at Israel, as we look at Israel, I, I do think that this is a new a new era in regional cooperation. And I'm I'm so looking forward to watching that develop and playing whatever role I can. And those of us who've been doing this for a long time know how much Israel has to contribute to the international community and and bringing these ties that have been growing quietly for some time into the open. I think it's going to yield really tremendous opportunities all the way around. Uh, frankly, in Israel, uh, in these countries, in the region, but but really globally, and that's that's what I, I look forward to. That's what makes me so hopeful. Turning to Iran for a moment, or turning back to Iran, since you mentioned it earlier, just a few weeks ago, the Iranian parliament passed a law to expand the country's nuclear program and stop granting access to the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. The British, French, and German foreign ministries put out a statement saying that Iran must not take steps to expand its nuclear program if it wants to preserve the JCPOA. What is your view of the possibility of successfully negotiating a follow-up agreement to the JCPOA, as President Biden has suggested? Uh, well, I, I think in this case, just 
starting where you left off, it's important for us to to be engaging with our our allies when it comes to Iran. That's true for our European allies. It's it's true for our, our regional allies, and and it's especially true for Israel. Um, the president elect and Secretary designate uh, Blinken and the uh, the next national security advisor uh, Jake Sullivan. They've all made very clear that that we can move back to the to the JCPOA as part of this this broader plan to address um, both the challenges with the JCPOA to make it stronger and to make it longer. Uh, something that that um, uh, Tony referred to. Uh, repeatedly throughout the campaign. Uh, Jake Sullivan's floated the idea of parallel negotiations on non-nuclear issues. Some people talk about entering, re-entering the deal for a specific period of time to try to work out issues of concern. There are lots of ways to do this. And I have no doubt that the the team that the president-elect is putting in place, uh, judging by the the, the people that we, we've uh, seen so far, uh, are the right people to work on this. And they're really talented and they know the issues very, very well. And they also have the benefit of hindsight and know that concerns from 2015 in terms of consultations with our partners, um, areas where Iran has pushed the boundaries and tried to cheat at the margins, they're aware of all of that. So I'm I'm confident that there's going to be a clear path that, that helps achieve the goal that we all support that's preventing Iran from getting nuclear weapon, also while addressing the missile program, their malign activities in the region and, and their human rights violations at home. That's All of that's gonna be good for our security and, and that of our allies. And I am, it's, a, it's hard, uh, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, and it's really challenging, but I, I think we just all have to be careful not to simply um, get, assume that we're back in 2015. Um, so much has happened since the region looks so different now uh, we've got to learn from that period and give the new administration the opportunity to, to lay out clearly what the plan is to address these very real concerns. Last question. You've spoken forcefully about Iran policy over the past four years, challenging the current administration's maximum pressure approach. Regardless of the conversation around returning to the JCPOA, all parties agree that Iran's malign influence in the region including its support for terrorist proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon and others that regularly attack and endanger the security of Israel is problematic and despicable behavior. What are the areas you think are most important to address in limiting, limiting Iranian regional influence and ensuring Israeli security? Uh, all of them? I mean, look, we... Um, you're right, I was, I was critical when uh, the administration pulled out of the deal um, and we've now, and, and has failed to really articulate a strategy uh, in Iran. And so we now have uh, Iran with 12 times more enriched uranium than they, deal, than they did before we pulled out of the deal and, and moving forward with, with underground construction in the tons and, um, and, and, and uh, moving forward in other ways that violate the deal. Um, their intentions in the region have been clear for a long time. Uh, and their primary goal the last several years has been to establish this land bridge from Iran, Iraq, through Syria uh, to Hezbollah and Lebanon. And they've imported weapons to Hezbollah. Uh, the, the technology to produce weapons on, on their own is something that they've provided. Um, Iran's export of weapons, whether to 
Hezbollah or or to uh, Islamic Jihad or the Houthis, that's an international problem. And we need much greater cooperation and interdiction efforts, frankly. And, and that's something that can be done without Iran. We could do that uh, among our allies and partners if, if we have the resources and if we have the cooperation and leadership uh, from, from the president to do it. So their ballistic missile uh, pose a really serious threat to Israel and to those other our other friends in the region and frankly to the Europeans. So a lot of the capabilities there are being produced internally, but cracking down on the on the illicit smuggling of missile parts is something again that we can do with greater international cooperation. So uh, look, Russia and China shouldn't want to see Iran with ICBMs. And we have a a specific procurement channel for Iran's legitimate needs set up through the JCPOA. Um, we have the conventional weapons ban in place. This is all part of the conversation. It's just unacceptable that Russia and China aren't doing stricter enforcement here. And that's a point of leverage that I think the new administration will have if the other partners to the JCPOA want to succeed. So it, it's um, there's, there's a lot for us to focus on with Iran, but it as critical as the nuclear program is in stopping Iran's nuclear program, um, there is so much, as we're considering how to do that, there is so much that we can do with American leadership to confront the other challenges that Iran poses as well. Ted, this has been great. Uh, I want to just thank you again for joining us for our first and hopefully our only virtual annual event. (laughs) We hope to be in person next year. God willing. Um, And we at Israel Policy Forum really look forward to continuing to work with you and your outstanding staff to advance the cause of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. So thank you so much. And Chag Sameach to you and your family. Uh, Thanks, Susie. Chag Sameach. And and thanks for the really, really great and stimulating discussion. I hope uh, everyone watching got something out of it, too. Appreciate it. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Ted. Take care. Bye-bye.